Um, I'm, I'm actually, I'm excited for this morning. Not that I'm not excited for other mornings, but um, today we are going to end our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I'm not excited because we're ending. Um, I'm excited because of the content that we get to navigate through. So this morning we're going to um, take three chapters, chapters 26, 27, and 28, and you might feel like, holy smokes, that's a lot. Um, it is a lot, but I, um, I just, uh, I'm just I'm excited for it because I feel like 27, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm actually going to read all of 27 and 28, and um, man, I was reading it this week, and I was thinking, rather than me trying to, first of all, summarize, which I could do, 27 being the crucifixion and, and just the, act, the ultimate climax that that is for the Christian faith, but I thought I would rather just read it as it's been recorded by Matthew and allow the Lord to speak to us of just the beauty, the awe, and the wonder that the cross is for us. So I'll get to that in a moment, um, but just as, as we're getting ready to end, what I wanted to do to begin was um, just quickly move through a summary thus far, and I do mean quickly. Um, Matthew's goal has been multidimensional as he's recorded. As we look at the different gospels, each gospel seems to have a different emphasis of the life of Jesus, and, and we've been looking at Matthew. So, of course, the gospel of Matthew is the revelation of Jesus the Christ. We know that, and it's made up of his words and his actions, but it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the mind and, and the heart of Matthew himself that the Lord chose to record this letter for us. And so we've been endeavoring over these last nine to ten months, it's been, uh, to understand what is it that the, the Lord Jesus wants to reveal to us through Matthew's account of his life. And so we've seen actually it's multidimensional. Um, on the one hand, one of the primary emphasis has been to tie the Old Testament covenant promise to what we now know and what we now understand as being the new covenant. He's tying the two together. Jesus, of course, being the, the fulfillment of one and the beginning of the next. To see Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the prophecies of old, all the things within the Old Testament. And Matthew has just a tremendous amount of Old Testament prophetic references as Jesus went about his ministry, fulfilling this prophecy and fulfilling that. To see Jesus as, as Israel's inheritance, their long-awaited Messiah. That is the, one of the primary efforts that Matthew shows to us. Jesus, who is the Christ, is the root of Jesse, prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11. From David's royal line, who would stand as a signal for the people says. He's the shepherd from Judah, promised in Micah 5, who gathered and who would rule his people. And he's the great light that's spoken of again in Isaiah, but later in chapter 42, which would dawn for those living within the darkness and living within death. This was the Christ that Matthew would record. And those were just three of many Old Testament references and prophecies speaking of Jesus. In addition, in light of this royal lineage which he came from through David, Jesus the Messiah was shown by Matthew to be the rightful heir and the king that was promised to the nation of Israel. And we've spoken about this at length. And we've said this too, but a king without a kingdom isn't really a king, is it? And so another primary emphasis of Matthew was introduced and that is the kingdom of God. Just as this king was unlike any other king that had ever been before, so too is this king's kingdom unlike anyone because it was not born from the earth, but it was from above. It was heavenly in its origin. Jesus, of course, being heavenly in his origin, so too his kingdom. And Matthew records at very great lengths the words in the teaching of Jesus as he identifies this new heavenly kingdom that has come to earth. And it's recorded by Jesus' acts of great power, his teachings, his revealing of the nature of the authority of his kingship. 
the revelation of the king's benevolence, the king's care, the mission of this kingdom, all revealing that was once under this idea that what was once for Israel, now revealed through Matthew's gospel, has become, because of their unbelief, because of their rejection of this king, will be as a blessing for all of the world. And so now it goes broader than just Israel, and it's for all of the entire world that this king has come and that this kingdom's mission is aimed at. But the plan was never that this mission would be accomplished or that this blessing would be taken to the world by just one man. But instead, we know, of course, by many men and by many women. And so another emphasis of Matthew is shown in his gospel. The church, the new community of the king, the new Israel, the church, the conveyor for his heavenly kingdom, comprised of those who are called, empowered, commissioned into the same work that he himself had begun on this earth. This is a summary, again, just of everything that we have been looking at, studying, and, and trying to seek understanding. And brilliantly and clearly, I would say that Matthew presents this man from Galilee, Jesus the King. And Jesus the King with his kingdom. And the kingdom's people and the people's mission. You can see it's one to the next to the next. It's all of these things revealed about now this new community of who we are a part of. If you are of faith here today, you are of this people. My desire is to make this connection today as we land in Matthew 28, that there is no end to what Jesus began. And we'll get to that here later in, in, as I get into it. But to connect us to the mission that Jesus began on earth. That's my desire here today. But before we can do that, we must see the final culminating act that this man from Galilee, Jesus, the Messiah, must accomplish. The act that he must endure to fulfill the once for all necessary price that this place of honor and authority would require. The most despised, the most humiliating of deaths, the most painful of experiences, both in his body and in his spirit, that he would take upon himself the scorn and the righteous judgment of God the Father for the sake of those who he came for. He must first endure this task in order to attain the place of authority that had been given to him. So Matthew 26 begins framing this humiliation through two lenses. The rejection of Jesus as the king and Jesus shown to be the Passover lamb. These two um, illustrations are shown in Matthew chapter 26. This theme of the Passover will actually run through 27, of course, as well as we see Jesus killed. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, slain for the appeasement of God's righteous and just judgment. So Passover, just very quickly, most of us know, but in case you hadn't thought too much into it, just grasp this idea of Jesus, the Passover lamb. Passover was the yearly celebration of the remembrance of God's redemption of Israel and the establishing of his covenant promise with them. This is their yearly celebration. And so there's no coincidence here that Jesus the King revealed in Matthew chapter 21 enters into Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover and that he would go to the cross as this picture of the perfect sacrifice Passover lamb. It stood, Passover stood for the nation of Israel as a perpetual reminder that they were his own prized possession, that they had been chosen, that they were loved, that they were cared for and provided for, sustained and guided by God. It was a time when sacrifice would be made on behalf of the people's sins. And to this, we find that in 26 is the institution of the Lord's Supper as well, which we have been commanded to celebrate. Now, not once a year, but as believers, when we gather, each time we gather, we partake in, which we will today, don't worry, we'll partake in the Lord's table 
as an act of celebration and remembrance of what? God's covenant with us. God's sacrifice given. The same celebration that Israel gave themselves to through Passover, we now too celebrate this new covenant. And here Jesus is the embodiment of this covenantal fulfillment. No longer would the blood of bulls and goats be necessary to sustain their relationship with God, but instead Jesus would stand in perpetuity that we might draw near to God the Father. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And as to this lens of the king's rejection, just very quickly I want to just say, in contrast of 25, I would say 26 is rather glaring. The one who had just been portrayed as the mighty king, riding into Jerusalem in chapter 21, and upon his glorious throne in chapter 25, would now undergo this ultimate rejection and suffering. Not because he didn't have a choice, but because he chose to fulfill the purpose of his father. So coupled with this paradox of the woman from Bethany, so here we have in 26 the beginning of this ultimate rejection and humiliation, and tucked in this chapter of 26, which we're not going to read it today, but I'm just summarizing this for us, is this story of a woman from Bethany who comes to the feet of Jesus with this absolute priceless alabaster bottle of oil, and she comes to his feet, and Matthew's gospel doesn't actually state who she is. She's just known as the woman. And so it wasn't important of who she was as the act itself that Matthew is consumed with. This picture of Jesus sitting and a woman coming to his feet and pouring the most priceless of oils upon his feet as a sign of honor, as a sign of recognition of the glory that he is worth. And so this paradox is shown to us. And Judas in 26, we have the betrayal of one of his own. And so the rejection again comes to full front. And this kind of dichotomy of the humiliation and the honor, the rejection and the glory. And so by the end of 26, Jesus now is all alone. He's left to fulfill this task on his own. And it won't be again until 28, more or less, that the disciples as a whole or as a group will reappear in the story. But this time, rather than the fearful followers that we see Peter pictured as, rather than the fearful followers, in chapter 28, the disciples will reappear as empowered ambassadors. And that's where we're going to land today in chapter 28. And so I want to read now at this time, it's going to take about, 13 to 14 minutes, and I want to read to you the words of Matthew, the recording of Jesus Christ. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 26, and Seth, if you wouldn't mind, thanks so much. We can put it on the monitors. I'm going to read from the ESV, so if you don't have the ESV, you might just follow along up here. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 47, and this is the word of the Lord that we receive today. While he was still speaking, Judas came out, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up, laid hands on Jesus, and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. 
But all this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus, they led him to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it then these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to them, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and they struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Chapter 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. And now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up, him being Jesus, of course. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two of you want me to release, do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they all shouted all the more, let him be crucified. 
So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Whoa. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scoured, scourged, sorry, scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and they put his own clothes on him and they led him away to be crucified. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by the name. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So all the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from that cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And now, from the sixth hour, There was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of their tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, And what took place, they were filled with awe, and they said, truly, this is the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus, And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Then the next day, that is the day after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers? Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and Mary the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angels said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they worshipped him. They came up and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The end of the Gospel of Matthew. As I said, I felt like to read it is so powerful to remind ourselves and to remember as we consider today, after this time in the Word, we'll come to the Lord's table and we'll in. in Take together communion in celebration of this chapter 27 and 28. The whole crux of the Christian faith being built around these two chapters right here. So I wanted to read it and I hope that you were able to just sit and listen and to be reminded and to be stirred and to be joyous if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ of what he has done for you the power of the Spirit of God to give him the grace to go to the cross and empower him to be raised from the dead in ascending at the right hand of the Father today. So just to land this whole thing, I want to spend the time that we have left um, in Matthew 28. Again, I, as I said, I want to connect us to this story. It's so easy for us to compartmentalize and just to read it as another book in the Bible, another story. Um, of course, just the significance of what we just read usually is impacting to us, but we go through that and we know this text so, so, so well that we easily read it and then move on to the next thing that we're interested in or the next bit. But I want to just take this and I, I want to connect us to the story and I want to remind us of what we have been called into. So Matthew 28, that last portion of 16 through 20, it represents now the final culmination of the mission of Jesus here on earth. So much of Jesus' earthly ministry and mission finds its completion, but what I want to show us here today is that not only does it complete, but it begins something new. Something is both finished and birthed simultaneously here in Jesus' mission. What began in Galilee, interesting, isn't it? It began in Galilee, and it seemingly ends in Jerusalem at the crucifixion. But it doesn't. It instead returns to Galilee, and it begins again with something new. What begins in Galilee begins again in Galilee. The introduction of God's kingdom, I just thought it was interesting too that his first series of teachings which we studied as, his, as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his first bit of instruction on the kingdom of God is introduced on a mountain and so here again we have 
the commission, the instruction of now the kingdom mobilized, given on a mountain again. What was initially only for the lost sheep of Israel, we saw early on in Matthew, now has expanded to all the nations in Matthew 28. The good news announced by John the baptizer in in Matthew chapter 3 is seen again, but again in its broader aim, not just to Israel, but the good news now of the crucified, risen, and exalted King. So now the, the broader good news message is shown to us and is given. The announcement of Emmanuel, God with us, from chapter 1 is seen again here in chapter 8, or chapter 28. The kingdom mustard seed that is spoken of in chapter 13 of Matthew now is intended to grow into a great tree. That's the idea from this now, from the commissioning that what was a seed that Jesus spoke of now grows into a tree. And what does that give us a picture of but John's revelation, the picture in Revelation chapter 22 of the tree that's planted by the stream that comes from the throne of God whose leaves gives healing to the nations, it says in Revelation 22. It was never meant to end, you guys. This is not the ending in Matthew 28. It's the ending of our study, but it's the beginning of something new that Jesus began at that moment that you and I are a part of today. And I think that the tendency so often is that we want to put a period where really what God did is just put an ellipsis. At the end here of Matthew 28, it's dot, dot, dot. And had we have studied Luke's gospel, we would remember perhaps the beginning of Luke's account of the book of Acts. What does he say? You guys remember, we studied through the book of Acts. And he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. And then he moves in to record the book of Acts and to speak of now everything that would continue from the mission in the ministry of Jesus Christ. It was just the beginning on that mountaintop in Galilee that day. It was just the beginning. And John in his gospel in chapter 14, he would record this statement that Jesus would make, that whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And then he says this, and it's a head scratcher sometimes, and greater works, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. See, these greater things are now possible because Jesus has gone to a place of authority and prominence because he rose and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he sent the empowering of the Holy Spirit, which only came after his ascension. And so we again, we have this picture that there's so much more intended than just looking back to the cross, but an envisioning for what now the mission is truly about. It's about Jesus the Christ. It's the empowering that comes from everything that he did. But it's now given to the broader, from the one to the many. So what does all of this mean for us very practically? I just want to give you two very practical and rather obvious things. The first one is this, and I've just been saying it, that it's not the end, it's the beginning. Matthew 28 represents for us, for us, the beginning. It's the mission that we've been called into. It's the same mission that Jesus Christ himself was working in and for when he was on this earth. We're called to extend the king's kingdom through countercultural acts of mercy and compassion as we speak of and testify to this Christ. Crucified, buried, and risen. The totality of what Jesus has accomplished. We do this purposefully through everyday acts. Engaging the world around us with the hope of the gospel. We act righteously. We speak righteously. We seek personal righteousness. All with the aim of proclaiming this hope. 
for the hopeless and bearing the light in the darkness. This is what we do. This is what Matthew 28 represents and instructs for us. And let me say this, to miss this point or to, at worst, ignore it or to reject it is to reject and ignore the very essence and purpose of the Christian life. And this, I believe, is where we must have revelation. We can read this and we can read this and we can read this, but are we living consistently with what has been spoken to us? It's as I said, it's intentional daily engagement. It's to testify and to witness of the power of the gospel, of the hope to the nations, the light into the darkness. It's not rocket science, right? That's why it's a very practical and simple point. Secondly, I think we need to understand clearly, I think we need to try to wrap our minds around what this commissioning actually looks like. I mean, in the sense, it's very obvious. It's to proclaim the gospel. It's to go to those who do not know and to speak. What, is this, what does this look like? Does it speak of this somewhere else? Well, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to do this in about five minutes. And turn with me, if you will, to the book of 1 Corinthians. And this is Paul's letter. In the context of this, is that Paul is addressing a disagreement within the Corinthian church in regards to the resurrection. But there's something that I want you to see here in chapter 15. Verses 45 through 49. Let me just read this to you. Thus it's written, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And we know who he's speaking of when he says the last Adam, right? Talking about Jesus. The last Adam became a, a living, a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. Verse 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, shall we also bear the image of the man of heaven. And this is what we often talk about. We use terms like the new creation as what to describe the Christian life or the restored image bearers. We have been made right with God and therefore we bear this image of that right place and right standing with God. This is what Paul is talking about. And as I said, the context is in regards to the resurrection, but I want you to just notice the tense of the verse, of the word in verse 48, when he says this, as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. He doesn't say, so also will they be of those who are in heaven. He says they are. Therefore, what is it? We say this so often. There is something that is to be experienced and understood that is now, and this is part of Paul's theology of the now and the not yet, the kingdom of God that has come to earth, that was inaugurated through Jesus Christ, that still exists today, whom the church now is the chosen vessel for the administration of God's kingdom. But it won't be fully realized. It won't be fully experienced until that day. But it isn't to miss the point that there is life now in the kingdom that's different than life in the kingdom of darkness that we as believers live in, that we as believers bear witness to and bear image of. See, Paul is indicating that there's a present experience to this new nature that we now live in. One that, one that he describes as image bearers in verse 29. And earlier in verse, in verse 20 of 15, the language that Paul uses in regards to Jesus is that he's, he calls him the first fruits. Jesus is the first of many. He's the first of his kind. We've said it before. He's the archetype from which the hundreds of thousands of millions who would come after him, born by the Spirit, would also be like. 
Bear the image in verse 49 means to constantly, perpetually wear like a garment the likeness of Christ now. To constantly wear like a cloak. And Paul uses other language of putting on and putting off the old and the new, right? Like a garment, like a coat, like a cloak, cloak, whatever the image you want to conjure in your own mind. But here's this picture that we are to wear this image of Jesus Christ now. To conform to the life of the man of heaven as those who now share his character, his behavior, and some of his nature as well, being born again by the Spirit of God, you and I. Paul here is urging those in Corinthians to become what they already are by grace. See, there's two important components to this present-day image-bearing life that we have. The first is faith, and the second is grace. Both of those are fixed firmly in what God has done, and both are fixed firmly in what God will do. Those are the two requirements to be image-bearers. Let me ask you today, by a show of hands, if you have faith, raise your hand. And now raise the other one if you've got grace. We have been given everything that we need for this life, have we not? We've been given everything to be these restored image bearers of the good news of Jesus Christ. What will it take for us to live accordingly? What does it take? And I ask that to myself as well. This should be our primary effort, our primary focus, our primary objective in life. Everything else should be secondary to this very thing. This is what we were created for, you guys. To be image bearers of God. And again, let me say, it's with all humility. Because let me remind us again that we were chosen, that we were called, that He chose to express His great love to us in our place of unloveliness and unworth. It's not because we're any better or any different It's just because God chose to reveal himself to us. And he does that by the words and the actions of his gospel. Bearing the image of his likeness goes so much further than the simple kingdom inhabitant analogy which we used in the beginning of our studies through Matthew because a kingdom dweller exists to reap the benefit from their benefactor. If you picture like some old peasant, you know, in a medieval walls of some castle, right? They're just kind of existing to please the king. There's conformity to the rules of the inhabitants, that's right. But beyond that, they they just exist to live in subservience to without any real external or outward implication to their existence within the kingdom. But see, God's kingdom economy far supersedes this earthly example of an earthly kingdom because we are called not to just be inhabitants, you guys, but to be ambassadors. We're called to be representatives, prototypes of Jesus the Christ. Beyond just our words and into all of what we are to think, say, and do, all of it is done so as one who bears the resemblance of the Lord Jesus. This is Matthew's brilliant summary here in these last four verses of chapter 28. A culmination of all of Jesus' recordings. The revelation of the new community of the kingdom of God. Who through all the chapters revealing the nuances of this is how you think. This is how you act. These are the things that you value. This is the place you you put priority to. These are the things to disregard. These are the things to take and to hold with like such strong grip to. All of that we've studied at great length over these last nine months to this moment. So he says, now you have everything you need. And in case you're uncertain, remember that I have all power, that I have all authority, for I conquered sin. I have overcome the grave. Therefore, go. And do what you have been made to do. 
Do what you have been created to do. As is the man of heaven, so also are we who are of heaven. Who John says in his first chapter of his gospel were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but we were born of God. That's you and I. See, there's something that's so amazing, unique, and divine about the Christian life. There really is. What we have, you guys, that's why we're going to be called to account for how we've stewarded what we've been given. Because what we have is profoundly unique. And it's divine. We must elevate it again, I believe, to a place of awe and wonder while still maintaining a spirit of humility because of our undeserving state. But let's elevate again this Christian life to the place of where Matthew paints it at the end of 28 in the words of Jesus the Christ. I am sending you into the greatest adventure of your entire life. I tell this to my children. You want to experience the most fun and adventure? It's not the, the wanderlust traveling the world. It's following Jesus Christ. There's no greater adventure to this world. And I just want to end with the words of John in Revelation. It says this, To him who loves us, in verse 5, To him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood, as we read in chapter 27, and he made us to be a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. And John finishes with this. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you stand with me? Would, can we prepare the elements? Um, oh, they're already here. I want to do this at this time just because we're coming up to the end of our time together. I want to invite you to come up and to take the elements and um, thanks so much, man. Take the elements, but would you take, can we just gather in this space right here? I know it's small, but grab the elements and let's squish in here together. I'll put these right here in the center. Oh man, dude, I'm telling you what. I'm telling you what. Jeez. I'm telling you. As you guys get the elements, we're not going to sing anything here this morning, but let me just say this. I was, I was just talking with um, Rick here, and most of you who followed the Lord for some time, come on in, come on in, come on in. Let's squish in. We're a community of believers, right? Um, if, for those of you who followed Jesus for some time, you'll probably know the name Keith Green. You guys oh, yeah, know the name yeah, Keith yeah. Green? Yeah. Keith Green was a radical musician who's now passed, unfortunately. He's got this song, though, called Asleep in the Light, man, and I cannot get this song out of my head. And I've been listening to this song, and I've been, like, learning it on the piano. And is it, anybody heard that song, Asleep yes. in the Light? It's like an absolute indictment on the church. But it talks about all of these. He has this line, it's like, don't you care, he says. Don't you care. You see all the pain. You see all the hurt. You see all those who are plummeting towards eternal death and separation. Don't you care? What's it going to take? You know, will the church continue to remain in a state of complacency and be lulled into this comfort zone that the world so wants us, that the spirit of the age wants us to exist within? Or will we rise to the moment? Will we rise to the occasion? And will we take hold of the mandate that we've been given to take the gospel to the city and to those who do not know? He says this, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he says, take, eat, this is my body. Let's take this today. In light of what we've read, you guys, beaten, pierced, slapped, spit upon, every brutality 
and humiliation possible he took upon himself. Represented here in this bread today as the body of Jesus Christ. And having given thanks, he gave it to them saying, oh sorry, he took a cup. And having given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of what? Of the covenant which is poured out for many and for the forgiveness of sins. Man, I can't, I can't say enough about this right now. You guys, I'm telling you, what we're holding right now, it's juice, it's wine, man, but what it represents, let's be careful to never be so familiar with the Lord's table that it loses its awe and its wonder in that ability to drive us to our knees in humility for what he's done. Let's take this together in celebration of the new covenant. Lord, we worship you. Father, we thank you for this gathering of believers. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us. And I pray today, Lord, that just regarding that faith and grace, I pray, Lord God, that you would activate that and make it alive within our lives, in our hearts and minds, in such a greater way than it's been before, Lord, that we would see our connection to your story, our connection to your mission, Lord God, and that we would have the confidence to stand, the confidence to go, the confidence to speak, because you have gone before us and you have sent us in your authority and in your power. And we thank you, Lord, for your spirit that lives within us today. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us all that we need to accomplish what you have set before us in this Gospel of Matthew. And so, Lord, it's with glad hearts that we receive the elements from your table. Lord, we remind ourselves again of the covenant that you have made with us, Lord God, the Passover lamb that you were, Lord, the payment for our sins. And Lord Jesus, how you stand now before the Father on our behalf, and when he sees us, he sees you. We are the righteousness of God. Father, we thank you for that. I pray again, Father, for just the faith and the grace now to live in accordance with what you've called us to in your name. Amen.